Good morning, everybody kind of, y'all kind of settled down on your own, I figured I better get up here. All right, well, again, let me say, we did last week, but again, you know, welcome to 2014. We're off uh, to a roaring start, and we're going to do that with a brand new Bible study series, as you can see in front of you. We'll get to that in just a second. What we want to do starting today is begin to introduce to you this phenomenal book of your Bible, a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the Romans. And really, it is an unbelievably significant book in the Scripture. It really, really is. And today, what we're going to do is just give you kind of a bird's eye view. We're going to give you kind of an overview and an introduction to this book in general and uh, try and kind of prepare your way for the journey that's going to lie in front of us. This is going to take a while. For sure, and what we will do is you'll see as we walk through this, we'll, we'll take this book in sections, okay? And so we'll, we'll take a section, then we'll take a break and do something else for a little while. We'll come back to it and do another section. And so um, it, you can plan on us parking here for a while into next year for sure, eventually. But this is an amazing book of the Scripture, and it has tremendous significance for us. And, and I just want to start out kind of by talking about that because Romans is understood to be really one of the greatest books in all the Bible and certainly probably the main doctrinal book in all of the New Testament writings. And, you know, you might select different books as your favorite or most um, uh, important books in the Old Testament. A lot of people might land in the Psalms, which carry not only a lot of inspiration but a lot of theology. Um, Romans would be that book in the New Testament for sure. And so it's really important that we understand it. Romans is given to us as an unbelievable literary masterpiece. Romans is written as a, like a doctoral thesis. Uh, Paul is a highly educated man. Certainly this is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit anyway. But it is written as a thesis, like a legal brief that thoroughly will prove its case, okay? And we'll see that as we walk through this a little bit at a time. Um, But without a doubt, therefore, it is very, very important that we have a good understanding of the things that are taught to us in the book of Romans. If you're aware of a name from history, Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther is the man who is most frequently referred to as one of the pillars of the Protestant Reformation, back in the 1500s, and Martin Luther previously was a monk in the Roman Catholic Church. He found himself reading the book of Romans. When he found himself reading the book of Romans, he came across some truths that he was not previously aware of, none the least of which appear in verse number 17 of chapter number 1. It says, "...there in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith." And Martin Luther got a hold of that idea that it is by faith alone that we enter into eternal life. He um, ceased to continue to serve in the Roman Catholic Church, and he wrote a thesis, and he, and he pinned it to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany, and, and that was kind of the, the initial movement of the Protestant Reformation. There's a man that came out of Great Britain whose name is John Wesley, who ultimately is responsible for the establishment and the going forth of the whole uh, Methodist movement as well. And, and John Wesley, at one time, he was actually a minister, um, but unsaved. And it was through hearing Luther's comments in Romans that John Wesley understood salvation and got saved. And so there's a lot of religious people in the world. There's a lot of people who think a lot of spiritual thoughts But what we need to do is get our feet firmly on the ground in the doctrines of the Scripture. I want to draw your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we're kind of just sticking our toes in the water here and starting to get uh, into this. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16 is a verse many of you have committed to memory. If you're involved in our discipleship program, you would probably have come across this verse and studied it. And so it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And certainly, without a doubt, all Scripture is all Scripture. All the 66 books of the Bible that you have in your hand apply, that that verse applies to those, but but certainly and very significantly in the book of Romans. Uh, There are people who would have noticed Paul's letters to the churches, and in the order that you have them in your Bible, 
how they tend to fulfill 2 Timothy 3.16, as though Romans would be the thing that is given to you primarily for doctrine. The two letters to the Corinthians, a church that had a lot of problems, given more for reproof. The letter to the Galatians, more given for correction as they were confused with the Old Testament legal system still bringing in their system of faith. And then the other epistles to the churches, Ephesians through Thessalonians, uh, for very specific instruction in righteousness. But that is, those four applications would be true of any passage of Scripture, and they would absolutely be true in the book of Romans. I really want to draw your attention to the fact that in Romans, maybe more than any other book of the Bible, certainly in the New Testament, you really do have a lot of doctrine given to you. It really is the backbone of church-age doctrine, and most specifically, and arguably most importantly, the doctrine of salvation. Uh, if, if we don't get that right, does anything else really matter? And if we do get that right, and, and good people uh, that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ disagree on other doctrinal issues, and Romans covers a lot of other doctrinal issues, and, and we will see those in time, but most certainly and most emphatically, the biblical doctrine of salvation is laid out as clearly in this book as anywhere you will ever find it, in any place. It's laid out in in unbelievable detail. And when we get to that last application of the scripture, the instruction in righteousness, maybe in no other place would you find the the theme of righteousness more completely treated than in the book of Romans. In fact, righteousness really kind of is the theme of this book. And so as I was studying and I was putting together my thoughts and how we would present this to you, we Uh, landed on this title that the the Romans, our series, would be the message and the mandate of God's righteousness. The righteousness of God is demonstrated all through the 16 chapters of this book, and it's demonstrated in a lot of different ways. But before we kind of get into that and talk about that, uh, let's just take a second, let's pray, let's just let God speak to us, and then we'll continue on with our introduction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as as we come before your word here and as we begin to look into this unbelievable treatise of doctrine and salvation and and tremendous practical teaching, uh, I I just pray that you would give us ears to hear what you'd have us to hear. Thank you, Lord, for each and every one that has come to be with us today, whether it be their first time or they come regularly. But for whatever reason, Lord, we believe you You speak to us through your word, and we desire now for you to speak to us through this word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and as we consider this book, and as we consider your message of how you are righteousness, and we're not, and the only way we possibly can be is through you, that you will specifically speak to hearts of individuals. Lord, I pray for those that are here who maybe aren't sure that, God forbid, their physical life would end soon, that they would have a home in heaven, that today would be the day that they would understand just how deep your love is and how much, like we sang earlier, you do love us and how they can just surrender today and receive that free gift of eternal life. And Lord, there's a lot of us that say we know you. We have asked you to save us from our sins, but we still struggle in life. We still fight our flesh. We fight sin in the world and difficulty and struggles that we have and We're burdened today. Lord, I pray for the people that are burdened today, whose hearts are heavy, whose minds are on other things, that just for the next little while, we would just put that aside and look to you for the answer and that you would speak to our hearts. God, be glorified in our midst and teach us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I gave it that title on purpose, the message and the mandate, and that's what we're going to look at by way of introduction. And then ultimately, we're going to look at the first seven verses of chapter number one. We'll look at them fairly quickly as it is introductory, but I want you to see the message of God's righteousness because God's righteousness throughout this book of Romans, as you'll see as we study together, is revealed in a lot of different ways. And so what I did for you is just right up front and in your notes, I gave you the entire, my entire outline for the entire book of Romans. Uh, that's no small body of work, by the way. And, and what you will find is I hope anyway, I will intend to follow this outline throughout the entire study. What we will do, as you see there in the first 17 
um, verses of chapter number one really are introductory as Paul is introducing his subject and we get into the first real section, which starts in chapter one and verse number 18. Uh, This week we'll go through verse seven. Next week we'll go up to verse 17. The following week we'll jump into our first section, which is really all about sin and where Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul, just proves the case on how man is utterly and hopelessly sinful before a holy and a righteous God. And so righteousness is demanded by God's holiness. And as such, God points out to us as mankind how sinful we really are. And he does that in such a masterful, complete, thorough, indisputable way by the time we get to chapter 3. And verse number 20, by the time we turn the corner in verse 21, we begin then to get the good news. The bad news is we're all sinners, but the good news is is that Christ died for us. And we see justification by faith. We see ultimately this idea of what it means to be saved and what God does for us and in us and through us as he justifies us. That's a church word. If you're not used to that, you could just think of it this way. Just as if we had never sinned. He makes us new. He makes us clean. He makes us right in front of him. And so his righteousness is there declared through salvation. Uh, We'll go on to the next section in chapters 6, 7, and 8. That, by the way, takes us through the end of chapter 5, where righteousness will then be defended, and the idea will be sanctification. In other words, that just is our personal life as we walk with the Lord, as we take steps day by day to walk with him in the Spirit. In the power of God's Holy Spirit, we will deal with issues of the Holy Spirit that maybe you haven't been familiar with. Maybe you come from a church background uh, that doesn't teach a lot about the Holy Spirit. Maybe you haven't spent the time to study that. We will get to that when that time comes. What does it really mean to be surrendered to the Lord? What does it mean to be Spirit-filled? What does it mean to walk in His power? How does that really play out? If you've ever wondered those things, those things will be addressed in this book. And it is an issue of God's righteousness because God's righteousness is defended in the in the way that we live it out, in the way that we demonstrate it to others as well, as we'll see when we get to the last point. The next one after that are chapters 9, 10, and 11. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are just chock full of doctrine. And really what chapters 9, 10, and 11, we talk about the issue of sovereignty. And we talk about how the righteousness of God has been um, declined or denied. Really the subject matter for Romans 9, 10, and 11, interestingly, if you think about it, Rome is the capital of the Gentile world, okay? It is the empire at that time, okay? And chapters 9, 10, and 11 yet are really all about Israel. And so Paul goes in and in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans deals with the nation of Israel in their past, their present, and their future state before God. So Romans 9 deals with Israel prior to Jesus Christ, Romans 10, all those verses that we use when we share the gospel and we land, whosoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, that's in Romans 10. Romans 10 deals with the state of Israel. We'll see it all in context when it comes because verse number one of chapter 10, again, deals with Israel. Is Israel's state today in the church age right now? Is there another path of salvation? If you're an Israeli and you believe in Jehovah God of the Old Testament but not Jesus Christ, are you still okay in God's uh, economy? No, absolutely not. In the time of the church age, there's only one way of salvation. It's through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way. And that's Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 11, often misunderstood for a lot of things, is really Israel's future. Going forward into the next era, into the next age, we're gonna see God's plan for Israel. When he talks about the natural olive tree, and and we are the wild olive branches that are grafted in and and there's some mysteries revealed at this time. And what happens is in Romans 9 specifically and Romans 11, excuse me, what we see is a lot of teaching that is hard to, um, it's hard for a lot of people to land on and they pull things out of context. We will go very slow and we'll go through the context. But there's an overwhelming tendency today for people to fall in line with uh, teaching that sometimes is referred to as Reformed theology. Sometimes it's referred to under the name of another one of the Reformers, the Reformation named John Calvin, and they call it Calvinism. Basically, it's the idea that people have been predestined to heaven or hell, this idea of eternal election and predestination. And those things, the, the people who would defend those thoughts and doctrines frequently run to Romans 9 or Romans 11, Romans 9 even more so. And we will look at those things in context, step by step. After we have taken all the time to get through chapter number eight, we will be 
primed. We will be ready to understand exactly what God had in mind by the time we get to Romans 9. And we deal with God's sovereignty. We deal with how God is going to deal with his chosen people, the nation of Israel, who rejected him and his message. And yet still he has a plan for them because he gave them unconditional promises that have no bearing whatsoever as to how um, they respond to him. He ultimately will fulfill his plan. And that is no, it's not laid out any place any clearer than in Romans 9, 10, and 11. By the time we finish Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, we will have completed the major thrust of the doctrinal teaching of the book of Romans. And we turn the chapter, turn the page into chapter 12 through really chapter 15, because chapter 16, for the most part, is a list of greetings and salutations to different people. There's some stuff that we can look at as a conclusion. But really that bulk, 12, 13, 14, and 15, are very practical Christian living, just practical teaching, okay? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, okay? And so it goes on, and it talks all about how we need to walk um, and, and live out these things. Romans chapter 12 is the thing that introduces to us the idea of spiritual gifts, Romans 13 talks about obedience to the authorities that are in front of us. Romans 14 deals with controversial issues. A, a man respects a day over another day. Another one says that you can eat meat, and another one says you can't eat meat. A lot of issues of practical Christian living are going to come up in these chapters, and it's really our service to God. That is the demonstration of God's righteousness through our lives, at all, um, uh, through our lives daily. And, and so God's message, again, the theme is righteousness. It's played out in a lot of different ways. What we will do is we'll take every section, and we'll take them a section at a time. When we finish Romans um, 3.20, we'll take a break, and we'll, we'll pick some topic, and we'll, we'll take a break from Romans for a month or something like that, and then we'll come back to Romans chapter 3.21 and, and on through chapter 5 and that sort of a thing. So that kind of give you an overview of, of where we're going with this. Understand this about Romans. Romans for sure gives us doctrinal teaching. And yeah, 9, 10, and 11 is kind of Israeli interesting stuff there. Uh, but for us as the church of Jesus Christ, for sure chapters 1 through 8 is the bulk of the, the teaching on doctrine, primarily, like I said, about salvation more than anything else. But a lot of things are touched on in that. Um, chapters 9, 10, and 11 kind of gives us some dispensational truth as well. And like I said, we referred to that already, but, but those subjects that are dealt with in there give us some understanding into this idea of dispensational theology. We'll talk more about that when that time comes. And again, those last chapters are very, very practical. And so it's awesome to see um, how that's going to come together. So that's the message. God's righteousness is, is revealed to us in these ways. It's, it's going to be very clear uh, as we go through this. The next thing I want you to see is the mandate. The mandate, or in other words, this is our mission. Because Paul, when he writes this book, okay, obviously it's the Holy Spirit that leads him to do so, but he still uses the human instrumentality. Paul has a goal. Paul has a ministry. Paul has something on his mind. Paul's intention in writing this book of Romans is the application of the righteousness in our lives. You need to understand that when Paul writes the book of Romans, although it stands as this bastion of theology, is not really written, primarily anyway, right? He doesn't write it as a theologian. Paul writes this letter as a practitioner of the gospel. Paul writes this letter as a missionary, okay? And, and so if you look at verse number one, he introduces himself. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. We'll look at that again in just a minute. But he introduces himself not as somebody high, intellectual, lofty, with doctoral degrees, with letters after his name that people need to bow down before and sit at his feet in honor. Paul introduces himself as a servant, an apostle, and then somebody who carries the gospel. That's how he introduces himself. And the whole letter, again, with the theme of salvation running through it, is all about how these Roman pagan people can come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He doesn't write this book as though it's heady theology. He doesn't write this book the way that many people consider theology, that there are scholars that sit in ivory towers that are air-conditioned and they never really have to get dirty in the sweat and the mud and the dirt of real daily life. Paul writes this letter as a guy who is down in the trenches with everybody else. 
Yes, it has deep doctrinal truth, but the deep doctrinal truth that's revealed to us through the book of Romans, okay, is merely, if I may say, incidental to the primary thrust that the lost Roman citizens need Jesus Christ as their Savior. And in so communicating this message to the Romans, he lays out this ironclad legal thesis that no honest skeptic can argue with. And it is unbelievable. It is beautiful the way that he does that. By the way, Paul's thrust as a practitioner, not as a theologian, that ought to be our thrust too. Yeah, study the Bible, understand its contents, be familiar with the places and, and understand the stories and know the theology and know how to rightly divide it and understand context and do your work to study to show yourself approved. Of course, why? Not just so that you can sit around coffee houses and tell cooler stories than somebody else. You learn the theology so that it becomes real in your life, so that you can reach people, so that while you are discussing the gospel with people who need it, and they bring up real questions or concerns, that you are able accurately to take the scriptures and lay out for them why they need a Savior, why without Jesus Christ their life is hopelessly lost. And Paul shows us how to do that, and the study of this book will give us a lot of tools so that we can do that. I want you to understand a little bit about Paul as we jump into this study. Again, today is kind of an unusual day. It's just introductory, and we're giving you background information. But Paul has a very unique role that he plays, and I want you to understand that. Paul's unique role, literally, is to continue Christ's ministry on earth. It's to continue Christ's ministry on earth. Before Paul takes the name Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And before Saul of Tarsus met Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 9, he was a Pharisee and he was a persecutor of that way, the people who were newly saved in Jesus Christ. And he was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He, he, was, a, he was anti-Christ. And, and he went about killing people who stood for Jesus Christ until God did an amazing thing and he met him on that road to Damascus and he had that miraculous experience and he goes blind and, and, and he cries out to the Lord and he surrenders to him and he hobbles somehow into town and God calls another man, Ananias, and he tells Ananias, go and meet Saul. And Ananias naturally has heard of Saul and he's the guy who kills all the Christians and he's skeptical and he's like, I don't want to go see Saul. Lord, I know you know. He's the guy who kills us. And God has a message to Ananias and Acts chapter 9, I want you to see it, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said unto him, Ananias, Go thy way, for he, referring to Saul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles, listed first, the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things, notice, he must suffer for my name's sake. So Jesus Christ calls Saul of Tarsus, and he responds to that call, and he gets saved, and his life is changed, and he has a very unique role for him. He has a job for him to do, and that job is to continue Jesus Christ's ministry on this earth. Now, Jesus Christ, without a doubt, suffered greatly at the hands of men in order to bring the gospel to men. Now, in Jesus' life, ultimately, that is the story of the crucifixion. Only Jesus could do that. Obviously, Paul or no one else needs to do that. It's once and it's done, okay? But that's, that was Jesus' role. But yet, in principle, the exact same thing happens as Paul continues then because Paul also suffers greatly at the hands of men in order to bring the gospel to men. And I want to draw your attention to a few places in the Scripture that make that very, very clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse number 23. Paul is speaking, and he's dealing with some skeptics and some doubters, and he says this. He says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. And here's how I prove that I am more of a minister of Christ than these doubters. He says, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. 
Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. The, the worst beating that would be allowed on a human being. Because 40 was said to bring you to the point where you would probably die. So they give you 39. So you could barely make it and live. Paul got that five times. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A, day, a night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils by mine own countrymen. In perils by the heathen. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. I mean, this guy couldn't catch a break. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. Who's signing up for this ministry? In weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside those things which are without, people attacking me from without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches, which, allow me to say, is enough to knock most guys out. Paul lived a tough life, y'all. I mean, he lived a life of suffering at the hands of men that arguably is rivaled by none save the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He continues the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering to get the gospel to men, and that's what 2 Corinthians is all about. Let's continue with Acts chapter 14 because Paul, some may want to argue that this did not literally happen. I believe it did happen, that he likely anyway for sure died physically and was resurrected like the Lord Jesus Christ in the process of his being a missionary at the, uh, in the midst and near the end of his first missionary journey. In Acts chapter 14, starting in verse number 19, it says, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Now you may suppose that he didn't really die. I suppose he really did, and I'll show you why in a second. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. If all you do is read that verse and you think, well, maybe he just was beat real bad and passed out, went into a minor coma, he came back out of it, he didn't actually die. You can believe it however you want to. Uh, but Paul has a very unique ministry, and it says in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is telling a story. Paul actually uses this type of literary model frequently. He refers to himself kind of in a third person without identifying himself. John did the same thing as the beloved disciple in his gospel where he didn't refer to himself by name. He just always referred to himself as the beloved disciple. And so in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. I want you to notice that where he says I cannot tell, he does not say I don't know. He just says, I can't tell. In other words, consider it this way. I'm not allowed to tell you. But I know a guy. I'm telling you a story. I know. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And you can go on and continue to read that chapter. And basically he sees these awesome, glorious things. And ultimately God makes him come back. And, and I believe that that's exactly what happened at that moment that he was stoned and left for dead. He actually died. And he went up for a moment and he's in the third heaven and he's in the presence of God. And once he sees all the glory of eternity and it's confirmed to him beyond any shadow of a doubt as though he would have had any, that indeed all this stuff is right. And then God makes him come back to earth, which had to have been a bummer. <laughs> Paul, from that point on in his ministry, changed. Paul no longer, I mean, he throws all caution to the wind. If you ever wonder why Paul ended up having that testimony, like in the previous chapter, with all the terrible things that happened to him, that is a guy who's living his life as though he had a death wish. It's like he's daring the world to kill him. And he's going places nobody would go, and he would, and he would say things nobody would say, and he would dare people, and he would throw it out there almost as if, you don't like it? Kill me, because you know what's on the, I know what's on the other side, and I can't wait to get back there. And that's how he lived his life. I believe he actually died. I believe that God actually brought him back, and that's why he was so effective. Paul has these experiences. We don't have these experiences. And, and he literally carries on this ministry of Jesus Christ, bringing it beyond the borders of the Middle East where 
Jesus was limited in his earthly physical ministry. And you read that and you think, that's kind of cool, it's interesting. I never really thought about that before. I don't know how that really matters to me today, obviously. Thank God I don't have to do that. Well, I do want to remind you of the fact that we are commanded to follow Paul. And the Bible is so clear about this. If you are in this church any length of time, or if you've been in any church and study the Bible regularly, you would be familiar with 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 1. And there's a lot of verses like it. It says, be followers of me, Paul says, even as I also am of Christ. And so, you know, listen, I follow no man, I follow God only. Okay, yeah, I mean, that sounds great. But really, at the end of the day, God gave us men as examples and leaders, and we should follow them. And he tells us to do that. And Paul, for example, is the one who more than any other human being, many, uh, any other human being, again, not Jesus Christ, but any other regular human being, any other sinner that had to be saved, okay, we are told to follow his example. Uh, the Apostle Paul stands as an example of the faith in a Christian life that we are to follow. And it's written in many, many places. And so Romans has its version, okay? And I just want to draw your attention quickly just because it's in the book of Romans and we'll get to it eventually in chapter number 11. Paul makes statements like this all throughout his writings, okay? And in Romans eleven fourteen, for example, it says, if by any means I may, here's the phrase, provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. Them which are my flesh, he's talking to about his kinsmen, Israel. Again, it's chapter 11. It's talking about Israel. I want to provoke them to emulate me, Paul says. They need to follow my example. Just as I was a Jew, a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, trained in the law and all those things, I cast all those aside for the knowledge, excellency of the knowledge of knowing Christ. I wish they'd do that. They need to follow my example. And all the rest of those, I give you a whole list of verses there. We're not looking at those today. Those are just for your personal Bible study if you're interested. Because you may not be aware that that many times, over and over and over in Paul's writings, does he give some version of an expression that would say, follow me, do what I do, provoke to emulate. These are the kinds of expressions that he uses over and over and over and over and over. That many times. Do you kind of get the feeling God's serious about this thing that we're supposed to follow Paul's example? That doesn't mean you have to go out and get shipwrecked. It doesn't mean that somebody's going to throw boulders on you, okay? Thank God, truly, it's not that. The idea is is that you have that attitude of faith that you throw caution to the wind, that you trust God enough, and you go for it. You get the gospel to the world. Paul is a servant of Jesus Christ. He's called to be an apostle, and he's separated unto the gospel of God. And that's an important thing. I want to talk to you just very briefly about the history of this letter before we literally look at the seven verses. And, And again, the seven verses won't take a long time. The time of the writing of this letter to the Romans is most likely right about the the chronology of Acts chapter 20 when Paul is in the town of Corinth. Okay, and and if you were dating it, uh, you would probably date it about 56 or 57 AD. Okay, so that would be about 25 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul is on a missionary journey, probably his third missionary journey, and he writes this letter to Rome. You need to understand in that history that Paul had never been to Rome at the time of this writing. By the end of the book of Acts, he eventually makes it, okay? He's a prisoner. But he had never been to Rome yet when he writes this letter to the Romans. But it's likely that he had friends there. His friends... Aquila and Priscilla were Roman citizens and likely had a home there. There were other converts who were from Rome. In fact, if you just go back a book to the beginning of um, Acts, and if you were to look in Acts chapter number 2, and in Acts chapter number 2, it starts off with that story of the great day of Pentecost and really the birthing of the church. And it talks about all the different peoples that came to the feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And they hear Peter and he's preaching this message and it goes out in all the languages of the people. And it gives the lists of all the people in the languages in verses 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 2. And it says of the list of the names in verse number 10, and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya and Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. In other words, there would have been people from all over the empire that would have come in 
and been there. People even from Rome who would have then become converts who would have gone back. But I've got to bring this to your attention because I think it's important and worthy of note so that you don't have any confusion because the one thing that some people might tend to think, and there's no biblical evidence for it, is that Peter ever ended up in Rome. You see, there's a great big teaching out there that uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, is really the cornerstone of all of our faith and ministry and that the Apostle Peter really played the role of the first pope in Rome, and we don't have any biblical defense for that. In fact, Peter has no, there's no literature in the scriptures that tell us that Peter was in Rome. In fact, the idea that Peter would be a pope, um, the Bible talks about Peter have, having been married, uh, unless they changed the rules, that wouldn't have been allowed. Um, but more seriously and, and, and directly, at the very end of Romans, in chapter number 16, if you want to go home and read that, Paul sends all these greetings, and he calls people out by name. And in all the list of all his friends and all the people that he calls out by name in Romans 16, he never once mentions Peter. How rude would that be if Peter was there? I mean, what a slap in the face that would be if his brother and apostle Peter was there and Paul didn't even acknowledge it. Now, Peter was never in Rome, and, and that's important. In fact, if you looked in Romans chapter 15 and verse number 20, there's a great statement that Paul makes about his ministry Romans 15, 20, it says, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel. Here's the focus and strategy of his ministry. Not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. Paul was a true pioneer with the gospel. Paul took the gospel to places that had not had the chance to have it yet. That's why Paul's the, the first main thrust apostle to the Gentile world. Paul brings the gospel to Macedonia. Paul brings the gospel to that peninsula that is Greece. Paul brings the gospel ultimately to Rome. Paul is on his way to Spain when he eventually, when he writes to the Romans and he says, hey, eventually I want to come and see you. Paul is the one who's always going to start new things. Paul, in fact, in one of those times back in Acts where he, he prayed and he wanted to go up into Bithynia, and he said, the Spirit forbade me. I don't know if you remember that story. And you wonder, I wonder why the Spirit wouldn't let Paul go somewhere. I mean, all the world needs Jesus. Why wouldn't the Spirit allow him to go where he wanted to go? But rather, he got that call and went over to Macedonia. Well, if you cross-reference some other places, like in First and Second Peter, as Peter writes his letters, what you find is, is that the Holy Spirit already had Peter in Bithynia, because those are the saints Peter writes to. And so I already got Peter in Bithynia. I don't really need Paul to go there too. So the Holy Spirit, who is the master director, he is the Lord of the harvest, sends Peter over here and he sends Paul over here. That's how he does it. If the Holy Spirit had already sent Peter to Rome, Paul wouldn't bother to go because the strategy of his ministry is not to build on another man's foundation, but to go where Christ is not named. And so um, we can be confident that Peter really never had any presence in Rome and there's no connection whatsoever to the great apostle Peter and any Roman system of religion. So let's do this. Let's read together the first seven verses. And we're going to break this down and we're going to understand the beginning of this introduction. So let's read together Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God which he had promised aforetime, or afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what I want to do for you is kind of break it up into sections. And what I want to do is give you verse number one together with verse number seven. And then we're going to go back and we're going to look at verses two through six. And the main reason is, in just reading through that, we read it through one time. If you look at it again, what you'll see is that the sentence, by the way, verse 1 to verse 7, it's all one sentence. There's only one period. It's at the end of verse 7. It's all one sentence. Okay, it's, it's, it's compound sentence. And so, but the, the, the sentence literally is, from verse 1, he introduces himself, and then he addresses his audience. Okay? But, and all of verses 2 through 6 are really just filler information 
to better give substance and defense and understanding to this idea of the gospel. And we'll see that in a second, okay? So the first thing that we're going to see is the presentation. How does Paul present, first of all, himself? How does he present himself? And when we read this verse, let's look at it just a little bit closer. He starts off by calling himself, right out of the box, a servant of Jesus Christ. A servant. Now, when we say, you know, I'm a servant of this or that, or, I, you know, I serve this, I serve that, in, in our minds, a lot of times, that's kind of noble. You know, well, that's so nice. You, you volunteer your time. You do charitable things. You serve. You help. That's a great thing. But when Paul uses this term, servant of Jesus Christ, literally, he's saying, I'm a slave. I am a slave, which, by the way, in that day would have been legal property of another. A bond slave. Bought with a price, right? Literally bought with a price. So Paul addresses himself. Again, he has high educational credentials. Paul is a Roman citizen by birth. Roman citizens serve no man, okay? But Paul introduces himself as a bond slave to Jesus Christ. My life, in other words, is fully and totally surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. My life doesn't exist. It doesn't even matter. I am here solely to serve the one who did everything for me. All I want you to get from this, and this is a wonderful study. You want to study the idea of servanthood and full surrender. Paul is the guy. And I'm not going to go on and on today. I just want you to understand that when Paul presents himself, he does not present himself in any way whatsoever that would garner some level of honor or respect to himself. He says, I'm just here to serve. That's all I am. Frequently, we introduce ourselves in situations. We want people to at least recognize that, you know, we didn't just fall off a pumpkin truck. I mean, we kind of know what we're talking about. Hopefully, they'll listen to what we got to say. I mean, we all got that in us. Paul just doesn't, he just doesn't go at it that way. He says, I'm a servant. I'm a servant. And he says, I'm called to be an apostle. Those of you who are, who've been a part of this church a long time, you're familiar with this teaching. That word that is translated apostle in your Bible comes from a Greek root that literally just means one who has been sent. An apostle is a sent one. Paul was sent out from the church in Antioch to go reach the Gentiles. In our language, we get a similar word that comes from a Latin root, and that exact same word that means a sent one in the Latin root comes to us as the English word missionary. And so Paul literally says, I am a servant, a bond slave of Jesus Christ and called to be a missionary. I am called to take this guy. I have been sent forth to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the peoples of this world that don't have it. That's his job. That's what he's given to do. His role is to take this gospel to the entire world. And the last statement about himself, I love this, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, when we talk about separation biblically, the way it's frequently referred to, and biblically referred to, by the way, is we talk about how our lives need to be separate. And when we talk about how our lives need to be separate, we're usually referring to being separate from something, and that something is something bad, it's sin. And so there's all kind of sinful influences in this world that we need to separate ourselves from. We cannot allow the sinful influences of this world to stain our lives. We have been cleansed and we desire to glorify God with our lives. So we choose to separate ourselves from those kinds of behaviors that maybe used to be normal in our old life. But now that we've surrendered to Christ, we're new. We're new creatures. And so we do not associate with those things anymore. We are separated from the world and its influences. But I love this because if all you have on your radar and the idea of separation is don't do bad things, don't do bad things, don't do bad things, and you're not replacing those bad things with a mission, you're not going to last. How many of you have known people 
that set out on a good course. They love the Lord. They want to do right. And they start realizing, wow, my life is kind of messed up. I've got some bad habits. Some people might know. Some people might not know. But it doesn't matter. Jesus knows. And I don't want to do that anymore. And so they start cleaning it out and cleaning it out and cleaning it out. But they never get plugged into ministry. And because they never get plugged into ministry, they don't replace it with the good stuff. They don't have anything to live for. And so cleaning all the other stuff out while we live in the midst of an evil, wicked world that continually puts pressure on us, I mean, the weight is just too much to bear. And so after a time, they quit. And they go back to the world. They go back to sinful practices. But Paul doesn't say just that I'm separated from the world, which he says in other places. Here he says I'm separated unto something greater. I'm separated unto the gospel. I'm separated unto the gospel of God. In other words, I need to be separate from the evil influences of this world. I need to be separate from those things that stain the name of Christ and bring me down. But I need to be separated from those things, not just for my own benefit and conscience sake, which is true. I need to be separate because those things ultimately hinder the mission. They interfere with the clear communication of God's word. And I have to be separated from those things because I am separated unto something much greater. I am living for something much bigger than myself. I am living for a cause and for a reason that goes far beyond my physical life. If God could use me to influence one life for eternity and nothing else good happens in my life, my life mattered. It mattered. And people live their lives for all kinds of things that don't matter. You know, you've all heard the expression, you can't take it with you when you die, right? You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. There's no point living for that stuff. I mean, if you can collect a few toys along the way, I mean, God bless you. But I mean, live for something greater than yourself. Live for something greater than yourself. That's how Paul introduces himself. Notice, not as a theologian, but as a missionary, as a practitioner, as somebody who simply is there to help them. And he addresses his audience. Now notice this, because this is cool. Verse number seven. To all that be in Rome. Paul writes to seven different churches in the inspired literature that he has. This is the only one that is written to all in that town, in that place. Every other letter to the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and on down the line. Every other one is written either to the church, to the churches, or to the saints. But not in Rome. Rome is the only one that's written to all. This letter is evangelistic. Paul's writing the letter to all Roman citizens. He's writing to everybody. Not just the church, not just the saints, not just those that he knew were already believers. And it's interesting because in those other letters, in all of those cases, Paul himself had been there. Paul himself had started those ministries. Paul himself knew who those people were. So he's writing a letter back to them and addressing the saints and the churches that they established. But Paul's never been to Rome. Paul hasn't established anything, and Paul doesn't build on other people's foundations, so Paul just writes a letter to everybody. He writes a letter to everybody. That's really cool. And he puts it out there. Now, Paul intended to go. If you look down to uh, verse number 10 of chapter 1, it says, Making request, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. He desired to come unto them. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established. That is, that I may come, uh, be comforted together with you by the mutual faith bond of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you but was let or hindered hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also even as among other Gentiles. So, Paul's intention was to eventually go to Rome and eventually preach the gospel and eventually set up churches, right? Because Paul understands. Look, Rome is the capital of the empire. Rome is the, is the main city. And Paul understood that a strong church in the capital city influences a lot of people. 
And so even today, a sound missions strategy is for missionaries to go to other countries and to start a strong church in the capital city. Because in most countries of this world, the capital city is the hub of all trade and commerce. And regardless of where the people live, they come in and out of that main city. And you can reach people from all over the planet by setting up strong ministries in capital cities. And that's what Paul did. He went to key places. And this is just one of those places. And so that's what it's all about. The book is evangelistic. And it starts out basically with the most part of the first three chapters dealing with man's sin and therefore his need for salvation, which is, by the way, where you should start out if you want to share the gospel with somebody. You need to start out by helping people understand their need for a Savior or else they won't really surrender to him, will they? They don't need it. And if people think they're okay, there's no need for them to surrender to something greater. And so Paul starts out building this case and proving how sin has stained all of us. To all that be in Rome, and then he goes on and he says, beloved of God. Well, that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world, right? I mean, everybody in Rome is beloved of God, aren't they? Everybody in Ohio is beloved of God. God loves everybody. God loves your enemies. God loves you. God loves everybody. And that's awesome. And by the way, lost people need to know that. If you want to communicate the gospel, we're going to have great lessons on how to communicate the gospel to people. You want to understand something? If you're here today and you're not sure about your life and and your eternity and all that sort of thing, please understand this. God loves you. And he's so willing to forgive anything that you've ever done. And we've all done stuff. He loves you. To all that be in Rome, to all that be in Ohio, beloved of God. And then this is real interesting. Called to be saints. Called to be saints. Again, this is a theological situation that a lot of people get confused on. We will deal with it in detail eventually. But I I put it this way so that you would have it in your notes. Called to be saints is not elected to salvation that's not what it means but rather that God calls all men to receive his offer of salvation and so if you get into the teaching and you understand that you realize that God calls all men you could take some time and go to other places for example in Acts chapter 17 and verse number 30 it says that God calls all men everywhere to repent You can go to places like in John chapter 12 and verse 32 where Jesus says, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Everybody in Rome is called to be a saint, but they only become saints when they respond. When they say, Yes, Lord, and surrender, then the next word that people misunderstand in theology is chosen. Well, God chooses you if you respond. You choose him, he chooses you right back. How about that? One of my favorite Andy Griffith episodes. Opie asked Andy, you gonna marry her, Paul? And he said, well, yeah, I think so. And he said, she gonna marry you? And he said, well, yeah, I hope that's generally the polite thing to do. When somebody marries you, you go ahead and marry him right back. And that's kind of what God does. You just go ahead and choose him. He just goes ahead and chooses you right back. And, and it's, it's not that hard to understand. But that's what, that's what this is all about. So listen, everybody, everybody in this world is called, God is calling out to you. Please respond to my love. Please respond to my gospel. I have done all the work. That's, that's, the, that's the introduction. That's who he's writing to. Let's look at the explanation, our second point. The explanation. Very quickly, One point for each of the verses, two through six. The first thing is the prophecy. And in verse number two, it says, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Again, the principal idea of the gospel, that God would redeem mankind, is present throughout all the, it's not, this is not a new message, okay? The details of Jesus Christ, okay, that becomes revealed over time. But listen, the fact that there would ultimately be a Messiah, and that he would have a death, a burial, and a resurrection. Those things are prophesied, and there's a lot of places you could look at them. I just gave you a couple to think about. 
because today's not the day we're doing that Bible study, but right from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15, as soon as sin enters the world in the picture, God gives this prophecy that it would be the seed of a woman that would crush that serpent and his seed. That's a prophecy of the Messiah. Uh, You could go to Genesis chapter 12 where God gives this promise to Abraham and he promises to bless Abraham and he sends him on a mission and he says, you will, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this great commission works its way through. Psalms 22 is just a great messianic psalm that has a lot of prophecy dealing with Jesus Christ on Calvary. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And just a lot of things in there. Isaiah 53, everybody knows about Isaiah chapter 53, that great story that basically pictures Jesus Christ suffering on the cross. This is not new. So the explanation of the gospel, again, which he had promised. What is which referring to? Separated unto the gospel of God. Which gospel he promised See, so it's prophetic. So the explanation is the explanation of the gospel because that's what verses two through six give you. We see it's humanity in verse number three. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So it introduces the real flesh and blood man, Jesus Christ, which came from the seed of David of the tribe of Judah, the one who is also the son of God, which is the next point the Savior, the Messiah. In other words, the Romans needed to know in whom they were going to place their faith and that it was that real-life man, Jesus Christ, 25 years ago, that that died on a cross. It goes and he balances it with the divinity of Christ in verse number four where he says, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus Christ is not only the Son of Man, he's also the Son of God. He's no ordinary man. He is the God-man. He proved that by the fact that he had a perfect, sinless life. No other human being ever could possibly do that. He died and rose again. He was the firstborn from the dead. He's the only one who could possibly ever do that. Normal men can't possibly do that. The mandate is given to us in the first part of verse number five. Paul lays it up, by whom we, we believers, in other words, have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So we, all believers in Jesus Christ, have received grace, that's salvation, and apostleship. That's your mission. That's why you're here. The commission to take the gospel to the nations. So verse number five really is Paul's version of the Great Commission, isn't it? Because that's what he says, and that's the goal, ultimately. The last point is the goal. That it says, for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name, right? Among whom are ye also, you Roman audience, the called of Jesus Christ. In other words, you can respond to this message, and you also can help us get the gospel to the rest of the nations. We don't have time to talk about it. I mean, the background in all this is so rich. You have to understand why this is important. Because Rome, the Roman Empire, okay, for those of you who are Bible students of prophecy and you understand a little bit about this, if you took the time, we're not going to do it. Go back to Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel, he's in captivity in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and Daniel comes and he interprets the dream and he has that image and the head is of gold that represents Babylon. And basically the image that Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar gives the story of Gentile world dominion throughout the rest of the ages. Okay, so it goes from the head of gold, which is Babylon, the chest and the arms of silver, which is Median Persia, and it has the torso that's brass, and that's grease, and then the two legs are of iron, and then the feet are of iron of clay. And that last world kingdom after Greece is Rome. And there is no more world kingdom after that. And then the prophecy goes on, it talks about the stone that's cut out without a hand, and it hits the toes, and the image falls to pieces. And that's a reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The point is, is that Rome represents and is the final world Gentile dominion. Forget about trying to re-up it with England or Russia or America or anybody else. It's Rome. It's always been Rome. 
it's always going to be Rome. And the letter to the Romans is ridiculously applicable to all of us. It is the capital of the ancient world empire, the last Gentile world ruler. And it is, by the way, primarily a European world, which gave birth to the Americas. So if there's one book in the Bible that is specifically good for Americans, it's Romans. <laughs> it's Romans because the primary thrust of our heritage as the United States of America is European. It's European. And so this book is ridiculously applicable. Romans is a book for you, Americans. Jesus Christ is calling all of you, all of us, to respond to his gospel. And as we begin to get into this, you will see such a clear understanding. You will be given so much information to be able to take this to other people. But before we close right now, I just want you to consider, look, if you're here and you're just not sure that you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, this is what we've been talking about. This is for you. So let's all pray together, and I want to give you a chance to respond.